Okay, so we are starting a new book in the Bible. We're starting the book of Mark. And so in order to get to the book of Mark, if you have a paper Bible, if you turn to Matthew, the end of the Old Testament, into Matthew... Ready to start a new book? We're going to try to become, this morning, we're going to try to become Markians. What does that mean? The Gospel of Mark. So we're going to enter into Mark's world. So if you have a paper Bible and you're um, at the end of the Old Testament, in the beginning of the New Testament, there's a white page. Everybody have a white page there, if you have a paper Bible? Because we're going to talk on the white page today. That's what we're going to cover. This will... This is what we're going to study. You ready to do this? Right there. So here's how we'll do it. We'll just be quiet. No. <laughs> they call between, between the Old Testament and New Testament, they call them the 400 silent years. But when Jesus comes onto the scene, there's a world that he comes into. So if we're going to study Mark's gospel, we do want to become Markians. We want to enter into his world and the world that Jesus came into. Because there's going to be a lot going on. And if we don't understand the players, if we don't understand the scenario, if we don't understand the background, we're going to miss a lot. But if we understand that, we're going to get a lot. And what we're going to find out is that Um, The same things that are going on with us right now in our world were going on then. Why? Because people are the same. People are the same. People have always been the same. Jesus is the same, yesterday, today, and forever, and Jesus comes into their world. So we're going to look at the Middle East in the days of Jesus, and we're going to try to enter into it, and we're going to try to see that the people in Jesus' day They lived everyday lives, and they had all of this stuff going on around them. They had their conversations. They had their conflicts. They they had their divisions. What's today's date? The ninth. The ninth. So so three days ago was January 6th. And on January 6th, people in our country, in our culture, in our time, had all kinds of conversations going on. And those conversations that were going on were divided. Some people felt this way. Some people felt that way. And one of the things that that people started to talk about over the last several days, you know, with January 6th, is people started talking about things from 200, 300 years ago. And people started, and the word constitution comes up. And people are talking about the constitution. And they're talking about where we came from. And some people are saying, going back to 1776. And some people are going back to 1620. And some people are going back to 1619. And, and just all of these conversations about who we are and what's going on. Well, um, very aware of our history, or becoming more aware of our history. More aware of who we are. And then taking positions based on those things, but what we're going to see when we go through this blank page is that things were exactly the same then. And in Mark's day, people were talking about their history. These Jewish people, Jesus comes into the scene with these Jewish people, they're very aware of their history. They're very aware of who they are, and they're talking about their history all the time. They're talking about who they are. They're trying to get back to it. Now, when you try to get back to your history, what, what, what does the song say? Um, these are the good old days. <laughs> you know, were they, really, were they really good old days or not? You know, who knows? But the Middle East and the days of Jesus. So, <clears throat> so just like we have a context, and Jesus comes into our context, that's where we're going to end. 
Jesus coming into our context, he came into their context. So the Middle East in the days of Jesus. Well, it starts with the world of Abraham. Well, why would we go all the way back to Genesis um, uh, 12 to talk about Jesus coming? Well, why would we go all the way back to 1776? Why would we go all the way back to Plymouth Rock? Why would we go all the way back to 1619? Because we're a people <clears throat> who live together, and we're aware of our history. Now, these people were very aware that they were the descendants of Abraham, that Abraham was their father, the father of the nation. And we talked about in the last week or so, if you look at any social media or browse anything or listen to the news, uh, you know, people are talking about the founders. Well, well, here's the founder. It's, it's Abraham. And they're very aware that Abraham is their father. And some of the dialogues in Mark that they'll have with Jesus have to do with Abraham being their father. Well, our history is, and Jesus talks to them about those things. So it's the world of Abraham. <clears throat> and so um, after the world of Abraham, Abraham's family, he has a family, and his family grows large, grows to about 70 people. They end up going down into Egypt because there's a famine. So it's just like people today. What do they, they do? They live somewhere and there's no work there, so they move into the area. A lot of people move into this area because they can work at Pfizer, they can work at a they can work at electric boat. Well, there was a there was a famine, and because of the famine, they went down into Egypt. And and while they were in Egypt, they grew to a great number, and then they came out. A, a couple of million of them came out. Now this was when we're going through Mark. This is one of the demarcation marks that they will remember. They, they remembered that they came out, they were, they were slaves, and they came out, and they'll go back to this. And when we get into Mark, we'll be talking about a people who remember this. And they celebrated every single year the Passover, the Passover lamb. How did they get out of there? They got out of there by the blood of the lamb. And so every year they're celebrating that. And when we get into Mark's gospel, three times Jesus will be in Jerusalem celebrating that event. It was the biggest holiday, uh, the Passover. It kind of like, our, we're still kind of in our biggest holiday season, right? The Christmas season, which when, when does Christmas begin? Just like Passover, it would be a long time. They'd celebrate it for quite a while. People would go to Jerusalem. It would take a while for them to get there. They'd stay there for a while. Some of them would stay afterwards. Some of them would stay all the way to Pentecost. So um, they'd spend quite a bit of time there. Christmas for us begins when? Black Friday, right? Isn't that when, uh, when the Christmas season begins? And then it doesn't end necessarily on Christmas Day. It, it usually will end on maybe January 2nd or Three Kings Day. So um, just like they had this big, long holiday every year, we have this big, long holiday every year. And they're very aware of that, and it plays into the Gospel of Mark. They'll be celebrating that holiday at least, we'll see it at least three times where they're celebrating it. So um, the land um, that they go into, well, the land now is about 45 miles wide and 145 miles long. It's kind of like the state of Connecticut if you just turned it the other way, right? Because we're about 145 miles a little bit um, wide and then, you know, we're a little more than 45 um, high. But um, it's going to be known as, by different names, so it will get confusing when, 
when you're in Mark, when you're in the Gospels, when you're reading these things, it gets confusing like the land that's being talked about. Because sometimes people say that they're in the Galilee. Well, what does that mean? Well, that's just a region of the country, the Galilee. So the Galilee is, you know, pretty much in the in the middle, you know, moving moving north a little bit. It would kind of be like if we said that we live in New England. Because we're certainly in the land, we're certainly in the United States, but we live in New England. They live in the Galilee. It's the region of the Galilee. And, and we've divided our country up into sections, right? We call it the Midwest and the South. And then there's the Deep South. And then there's the West. And then there's the Southwest. So, so they had that region of the country, the Galilee. And also Samaria. Now Samaria, we're going to get to that in a few moments when we talk about who the Samaritans were because it plays big into the scene that Jesus comes into. Judea in Israel, so there was a civil war in Israel. And because of the civil war in Israel, there were people who lived in what was called Israel and people that lived in Judea. And they were very aware of their civil war history. And it doesn't go away. It's in their consciousness. And so it's also called the land of Canaan. It's called the promised land. And in a minute, we'll see some other things that it's, that it's called. Um, and so here's the history of Canaan, a.k.a. Palestine, also known as Israel, known as Judah to some, known as the promised land. And so the way that the history of this place goes is Abraham moves into there. And then when Abraham moves into there, his family grows large and they become a tribe. And in the land, when Abraham gets there, it's sort of a tribal place. There's not necessarily what you would call nations or countries there, but there's tribes. And Abraham, in the, in the book of Genesis, he gets involved in some conflicts and some skirmishes with some of these tribes. But that's what's happening in the land, in the history of the land. And keep in mind that when Jesus comes onto the scene, these people are very aware of their history. They know who they are. They know where they've come from. They know what it was like. And it will keep coming up over and over again. And some of the things that Jesus addresses, he's going to really be addressing things that, that apply to them in their country, in their nation, in their history. So there were tribes. Well, the tribes, um, what ended up happening was the Babylonians, they became wanting to be a world-governing empire. They just started conquering and assimilating all of the places that they conquered. Well, they came and they conquered that land where Abraham was. And so for a while, uh, they, they, they took those people and conquered them, and then they deported them to Babylon. That's really important to their history. They're going to remember that. It's part, again, of their collective subconsciousness. They're, they're all the time, they're aware of the fact that they were exiled into Babylon. Babylon um, being modern-day Iraq. And, um, you know, Iraqis, um, Chaldeans, you know, they're, they're still very aware of their ancient history to this day, just like Israel is very aware of their ancient history to this day. Babylonians came uh, the Persians. The Persians conquered. And when the Persians conquered the Babylonians, they, they conquered that kingdom in a day. In a day. Now, Babylon was thought to be a kingdom that could never fall. The, the walls of Babylon, 
were so wide, they said you could drive a couple of chariots abreast on the walls. They were protected. Ba- Babylon is both a city and a kingdom. So it gets confusing. It's like a city and a kingdom. So the Persians come and they conquer. So when the Persians conquer, you know, well, Israel, Palestine, Canaan, you know, whatever you want to call it, um, in the day, they get conquered by them. Well, the Greeks, Alexander the Great, he gets his forces together and he, he starts conquering. So he conquers the Persians. And these things, the Greeks conquering the Persians and the Persians being so brutal, these make great blockbuster movies. <laughs> and people have been using the history and the themes forever in making blockbuster movies. Movies that cost a lot, usually, because you have to get a lot of extras in there um, to have all of the fighting forces. Well, the Maccabeans, they come in, and they try to take back everything. And then the Romans come. And when the Romans come, the Romans come, and they're pretty much there to stay. But when Jesus comes on the scene, the Romans are ruling. The Romans are ruling. And uh, here's some, I don't know that the maps will make any sense to you at all, but but, but those maps show Babylon on the, the top left and how much Babylon had conquered and then Persia conquers them but also takes more and then the Greeks conquer. And the Greeks go really pretty much all the way to India because most of these kingdoms are, you take the Mediterranean and then you start to move out and they like to see themselves as world-governing empires, but they're not governing the whole world. Uh, by the time it gets to Rome, Rome's going pretty far. Rome is stretching out all the way into northern Europe. Rome's stretching down into Africa. It's moving, it's moving into Asia. But you're going to have to wait for Britain and in in Portugal and Spain before you have kingdoms that are trying to take the whole world. But the, there were these kingdoms that, that were growing and expanding, and the amazing thing is, um, you know, we'll have to go over it again sometime. Um, King Nebuchadnezzar's dream in the book of Daniel, uh, God gave Nebuchadnezzar in the day of the Babylonians this dream that showed all of these kingdoms and how these kingdoms would conquer and how these kingdoms would grow. World history was written in advance when <clears throat> the Jewish people were living in Babylon and God gave a, a, a heathen king a dream that showed him all of the kingdoms of the world all the way out until an end-time kingdom, an end-of-age kingdom. And he gives him this picture of it. So we're not in Daniel right now, but they would have remembered Daniel. They know, they know about Daniel. In fact, when Jesus is talking to them on the Sermon on the Mount, he references Daniel. And he references the, the things that would be happening in the end from Daniel. So they're very aware of who they are. And and so when we come in the room, when we're doing Mark, we need to change and become Markians, right? First century Markians. We want to remember who we are and where we've come from and what's going on around us so that we can understand the interactions and the words because they have application to us right now because we're going to see that everything that was going on then is going on now, everything. Everything that was going on then is going on now. So that's who they are, their geography, their basic history, where they've come from. So let's start to move in. We're going to start to move in closer and closer. So there's the basic history, the geography. They're aware of all of that. They're living all of that. 
Well, also, in Jesus' day, there's religion. Just like in our day, there's religion, right? And so um, they understood that they had been chosen by the one and only God to fulfill a specific destiny. They knew that. They believed that. They believed that they were the chosen people. Fair enough. Chosen for what? What were they chosen for? Well, they were chosen to do a few things. They were chosen to be given the word of God. So all the way up to the white space, they were given all of that, and they preserved it. And they preserved it exact. They were real good with preserving it. So what else were they chosen for? They were chosen to be the family tree that the Messiah for all of humanity would come through. That's what they were chosen for. And so um, some of them, even to this day, think that they were chosen to suffer because they've suffered so much throughout the ages and we start, you know, conquered by Babylon and Persia and Greece and, and Rome and, you know, into the, into the modern age, you know, the Holocaust. And if you've ever seen Fiddler on the Roof, Tevier says, I know that we're your chosen people, but maybe next time you could choose somebody else. <laughs> so... Uh, so they were a chosen people with a special destiny and their, and their specialness and their destiny was to bring forth the Messiah, Jesus, through the family tree of Abraham and King David. And we looked at that a few weeks ago when you look at the Christmas accounts. So they have a temple and they have synagogues. But this is pretty important for us to understand is that the synagogues are basically a modern invention the synagogues are not prescribed in the Bible. The Bible doesn't say, you know, make sure you go to synagogue every Sabbath. Not at all. They were supposed to rest every Sabbath, and they were supposed to take time every Sabbath. And, and they had sort of messed that up religiously where Jesus corrects them, and he says, look, he says, the Sabbath was made for people, not people for the Sabbath, because they became a slave to the Sabbath. And so we say that the Ten Commandments are love God on one tablet, uh, uh, love people on another, and the connecting one is love life, the Sabbath. You were supposed to take time to just enjoy God, enjoy people, enjoy life. Well, they became a slave to it. So the synagogues are not prescribed in the Bible. So where did they come from? When they were exiled into Babylon, remember Babylon conquers them, and Babylon's way of controlling people that they conquer is to exile them. Let's bring them to Babylon. Because when we bring them to Babylon, they'll be all confused. They don't know the language. They don't know the customs. They don't know anything. It'd be easy to control them. So they export them to Babylon. When they come back from Babylon, and they come back slowly, and not all of them come back. We'll see that in just a moment. Uh, but when they come back, they start these synagogues. But they, start, they kind of start the synagogue idea in Babylon. Why? Because they're exiled... They don't have a place to meet. The, the temple isn't there. They don't have a central place anymore. So they start these synagogues. Synagogues are gatherings, gatherings of people. And many times they have physical buildings. The synagogues are physical buildings. And those synagogues would maybe be regional. They're not necessarily in every town and every village, but they might be because anybody could really have a synagogue. And, and in the synagogues, there are no... 
sort of professional priest class or professional clergy class. Um, they were run by the community, and they would have something like a president of the, uh, of the synagogue, kind of like the guy who heads up the local Little League or the woman who heads up the local Little League, right? The president of the organization. And the one who's the president or the keeper of the synagogue wouldn't necessarily run religious services. Those religious services would maybe be run by the people, although they could. They could run the services. That's why you see when Jesus comes into the synagogue, the ruler of the synagogue, they call him the ruler of the synagogue, the president of the synagogue, the ruler of the synagogue lets Jesus speak. Because as much as opening up the doors of the synagogue, making sure that it's clean, the ruler of the synagogue also was supposed to schedule the people that read the scriptures and explained it. So probably when Jesus came around, the, the ruler of the synagogue was probably like, great, I don't have to schedule anybody this week. You know, do, you, do you have something to say? Do you want to read? And they would just read through the scripture, and Jesus reads through the scripture, and he says, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. It's amazing that he was in that spot. That's why when Paul and Barnabas and these guys are traveling around and they go to the synagogues, the ruler of the synagogues uh, understand that you know, they've been educated by some of the, the leaders in the movement, and so they're glad to have them share. Oh, would you like guys like to share today? Because you know, we've just been listening to the same guy every week lately, and you know, it would be great to have somebody else. So they share. So the temple and the synagogues. But synagogues are everywhere, and they're going to play big into Mark's story. <clears throat> when we become Markians, synagogue is important. But they're not biblical. They're not prescribed in the Bible. It's just something that arose. Well, they went into, um, they went into exile in Babylon because they worshipped physical idols. They would never worship physical idols again. They learned that lesson. We're not going to make things and look at them and worship them. But things don't just need to be physical in order to be an idol. I think we know that. <clears throat> they also understood this, the big picture. They understood or believed that the Messiah would defeat the Romans and usher in a time of universal peace. So they were looking for the Messiah because they wanted to see Rome conquered. They didn't like being ruled by Rome, and the, and the Messiah would bring in universal peace. Well, the Messiah did conquer the Romans. Uh, he did bring in universal peace, but not the way that they would have liked it, not the way that they would have thought about it. So, good Markians. Now, <clears throat> religious groups. One of the religious groups in Mark's day is going to be the Pharisees. Now, there's not a lot of Pharisees. There's about 6,000 of them all scattered throughout the land. And um, the Pharisees, it's Aramaic for the separated ones. You see, they were set apart. They were different than everyone else. And they um, added oral traditions to the scriptures. They believed in God. They believed in angels. They believed in faith and good works. They believed in the coming Messiah. And they believed in the resurrection. Jesus opposes them for their rigid legalism, for their, for their hypocrisy, and their unwillingness to accept the kingdom of God as being represented in him. So... Um, Suspend how you think about these words for a minute, and we'll try to explain who they are. They, in the day, 
they would have been considered theologically conservative. So again, suspend that word conservative from your mind for a moment. They were theologically conservative, which meant that they preserved and conserved the scriptures, and they held to the scriptures. They held to the scriptures certainly with, they say what they mean and they mean what they say, plus the other stuff we added to it. So you hold to this, plus they have these things that they've passed down orally, these things that were interpretations that have become absolute truths. Just the way they interpreted something, and now it has become an oral tradition, and it's put on the same level as the Scripture. So they hold to the Scripture. They're, they're supernaturalists. They believe in all the supernatural things. They believe in the Bible. They believe in afterlife. They believe in all of those things. Jesus sees them as just stuck and unwilling to change. And, and those who say that they're holding to the Scripture, Jesus tells them, you're holding to the Scripture so tight you don't even see what the Scripture says. You don't even see what's standing in front of you right now, that the kingdom of God is here, and you don't even see it. So that's the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees are very respected. When, when we read about the Pharisees, we usually think, oh, what a bunch of hypocritical bad guys. Well, they didn't think of them as hypocritical bad guys. In fact, um, Jesus is the one who exposes their hypocrisy. They were thought of as good religious guys. Not so much now, but um, you know, in recent decades, if somebody walked around with a collar on, you thought they were pious. You thought that they were holy and you would treat them as such and you would probably think whatever level of spirituality, whatever level of being pious they are, I could never achieve that. So the people saw the Pharisees as having a spiritual life that they probably never could achieve. That they're the, they're the strong religious group. Better than us. More religious than us. And they knew that and they certainly played that part. That's why Jesus calls them out. You know, you guys are just hypocrites. You're not, you're not real. You know, you might look real, but you're not. He said, you guys are whitewashed tombs. He said, you look great on the inside, but on the outside, but inside you're full of dead man's bones. <laughs> Religious groups, the Sadducees, well, they're a little bit smaller, but they might have more influence. The Pharisees seen as the holy ones. The Sadducees, a few thousand, but they're more of the priestly aristocratic families. They're connected. They're the ones, they have more money, they have more influence, they hobnob with the, the rich and famous more than the Pharisees. Because the rich and famous, they don't want to hang out with the Pharisees. You know, those guys are just dull. Um, but these guys, these guys move around. You know, see, these guys get around. And they're sort of in both worlds. They have feet in both worlds. And they don't believe in angels. They don't believe in the coming Messiah necessarily, um, the resurrection or life after death. They, they hold very loosely to the scriptures. So theologically, they're liberal. They they have a very liberal view of the scripture. Like, yes, that's what it says. That's a relatively good guideline. And, you know, people should probably follow that, but that's not necessarily. So they held to it very loose. Um, and they made common cause with their political enemies, the Pharisees, in condemning Jesus to death because it was advantageous for both groups to get rid of Jesus. Now, 
before Jesus, before they get together in their uh, hatred towards Jesus, they're pretty much divided. But Jesus opposed them for their false doctrine and for exploiting worshipers, taking advantage of worshipers. So it's not a whole lot different than today where you have you know, the, the, the people that are like the Pharisees, the way that they see the world and the way that they see the scripture and the way they see God and the, and the Sadducees, the way that they see scripture, see the world, see God. Same, same world, same world. Um, then you have the Essenes. These guys are pretty interesting. Um, they lived down in that area. That's down near the Dead Sea. And these guys, they, they completely pulled away from the world. They were the mystics the religious mystics. And that little cave there is, uh, that's where they found the Dead Sea Scrolls. And it was, the Dead Sea Scrolls were found by a shepherd boy who was out there watching his flocks and bored to tears. And uh, he, he used to take stones and try to throw them into those caves, see if he could get the stones in there. And a few times he, he got stones in there and he heard, he heard a click, a clunk, that's kind of interesting. There's something in those caves. Like when it went in there, he heard this hollow clunk. So he got himself up there. Pretty creative kid, right? Got himself up there. And when he got himself up there, he found all these clay pots. And in those clay pots were scriptures that had been copied by hand from the Essenes, the Essenes, um, and the, the scriptures. Now they had a lot of their writings, but they also had a lot of the scripture. There's a, a complete Isaiah scroll that was in one of those things. These things are invaluable. You know how much the shepherd boy got for those? Not much. He didn't get nothing. We don't even know his name. <laughs> you know, so, uh, so that's these guys. They, li- they, li- they live down there. There's about 4,000 of them. And so they completely drop out of the world. They drop out of the world because they don't want to be stained by the things of the world. So they get away from the world. They don't want to be in Jerusalem. They don't want to be in Galilee. They don't want to be around the Pharisees. They don't want to be around the Sadducees. They want to be by themselves. And they want to get away from the world and they want to be unstained from the world. So, you know, for them, it's Aramaic for the pious, the holy ones. Well, they did believe in angels. They believed in the Messiah. They believed in the resurrection. Um, and they believed, in, they believed in life after death. They believed in all of those things. They're mystical. They like those things. Those things are very attractive to them in the way that they see, that they see the world. And so they practice communal living. They live together, um, shared everything in common. They had these rigid ascetic principles They weren't into um, all of the pomp and circumstance that particularly the Sadducees would be into, the somebodies. They were into celibacy, which it's not hard to figure out why they didn't last too long. (laughs) First of all, who who wants to really join them? (laughs) And uh, the amazing thing about, you know, groups religious groups that promote celibacy um, is you can always figure out who sins. <laughs> so, uh, so, so they had frequent uh, ritual washings. Why the washings? Because what are they washing off of themselves? The world and the filth of the world. So they would do it frequently. How many times a day do you need to wash yourself in order to get the filth of the world off of you? 
Well, what you need to wash is you need to wash your brains. You need to be brainwashed, not, not you know, foot washed. They were anti-temple. They didn't like the idea of the temple. Why? Because they didn't like the phrase that people would use today to bring it into that, where people say, you know, I don't like organized religion. Well, neither did they. And they didn't like the temple. They didn't like any of that stuff. And they were strongly legalistic in matters of ritual purity. And they stayed to themselves in Qumran. We just uh, saw that picture of Qumran. That's down there near the Dead Sea. Um, There's also an oasis there um, where uh, King David fled from Saul. And it's cool, the oasis, like you walk through an area like that and then you start to see some vegetation and more vegetation. and, And by the time you get to the end, there's caves and waterfalls and it's lush in the midst of that. So um, they stayed to themselves at Qumran, um, just west of the Dead Sea. So coming into the world, Jesus is coming into a world where people understand their geography, they understand who they are, they understand what's happened, they understand their history. Now they have interpretations of their history, just like we have interpretations of our history. And over the last week, people have been giving their interpretations of of our history. But they, they know who they are. They know where they've came from. They, they have their interpretations of history. They're, they're, a re, they're very religious people. The United States is still a very religious place. Still a very religious place. I mean, the polls show that like people consider themselves religious. It doesn't mean that they all go to religious gatherings, but they consider themselves religious. And so in Israel, it's a very religious place and you have the denominations. You know, you have the fundamentalists and you have the you know, the liberals, and you have the, the mystics, you, you know, same, 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 same. So it goes on, and then you have, making it smaller now, let's get smaller, you have a group called the Zealots. Well, who are the Zealots? The Zealots are a group of first century Hebrews who do not like being ruled by Rome And so they are for the violent overthrow of Rome. They want to do it through violence. Now, the the zealots are sort of liked and not liked by the community. In fact, Jesus, when he calls his disciples, one of the disciples he calls is a zealot. Simon the zealot. And they were responsible for the uprising in in the year 66. Um, They couldn't... The Jews could not have a standing army because if they had a standing army, Rome would crush them. But the zealots are, some people liken them to today the, the term terrorists, that, that they didn't have a standing army, but they fought the poor man's war. Terrorism is the poor man's war. What do you do? You try to strike terror into somebody's head, try to get in their head and stay in their head, try to scare people to death. And you can scare people to death with terrorism in the first century by like just kidnapping a Roman soldier, maybe killing him, but then taking his helmet and leaving his helmet in the middle of the road on some traveled place. And what would people say? Don't go down there, man. That's where that guy's helmet was. And then for like years, they'd remember that's where that guy's helmet was. So you're striking fear into the minds of people. And so they were trying to overthrow Rome. They were pretty serious about it. They were willing to give their lives. Jesus calls this one guy into his circle, Simon the Zealot. So, uh, you know, what would they be today? You know, how would you place them? Where, where would you put them in, you know, our recent scenarios? Um, 
Well, you have the Herodians. So you have the Zealots and you have the Herodians. Why did they call them Herodians? Well, there's a name in there, Herod. Herod's the ruler. These are the ones who are very or as much loyal to the government as they can be. They want to keep everything they have, and the way that they keep it is by buddying up with the government. So they're loyal to the Roman government. Uh, Matthew, who Jesus calls, was a tax collector, and Matthew used to collect taxes from the Jewish people and give them to Rome. How do you think Simon the Zealot felt about Matthew collecting taxes from the Jewish people and giving it to Rome so that Rome could fund their military machine to continue to keep them down. How do you think Simon felt about that? You think Simon felt like, hey, he's a good guy. (laughs) I'm sure Simon didn't like him at all. And Jesus brings Simon and Matthew into the same circle of disciples, puts them together. And it doesn't say it, but when Jesus sends them out in Matthew 10, I like to imagine in my mind that he sent Matthew and Simon out together. <laughs> Why don't you guys take off, you know, for eight or 10 days and, you know, go out to these towns and villages and tell them what we're doing with the kingdom and then come back and report. Well, it's what Jesus does. Jesus takes the zealots and the Herodians and he brings them into one room, brings them together. Jesus brings everybody together. Brings everyone together. So the Herodians, they're, uh, they're buddied up. They're sort of, uh, some people liked them, some people didn't. Some people saw them as uh, turncoats. Then there's the Samaritans. Well, the Samaritans, they, uh, they live in the land, but they live in a separate area. Why do they live in a separate area? Well, going back to their history, they know their history. You know, they know they're 1776, they're 1620, they're 1619. They know, you know, the Vikings coming. So, so they know all of that stuff. Well, the Samaritans were also not Samaritans when they were exiled into Babylon. When in Babylon, they let them come back, they start to trickle back to Israel start to trickle back home. Some of them stay in Babylon for sure. Some of them don't make it all the way back to where they were before because they were there for 70 years. So a lot happens in 70 years. To go back 70 years later to where you came from, for your family of origin, you know, it could be, could be quite difficult. I mean, think about your family and your family of origin 70 years ago going back. Like, what would you do there? So, you know, it's a, there's a lot of mixture, a lot of stuff going on. But the Samaritans, what happened with them is they didn't stay pure Hebrew. They didn't stay pure family of Abraham. They started to mix with the other people. And because they started to mix with the other people and they weren't pure Abrahamic bloodline, they were looked down on by the pure Abrahamic bloodline people. So they don't want anything to do with them. Those who consider themselves pure Abrahams don't want anything to do with them. They are prejudiced against them. They are bigoted against them, and they're oppressive towards them. They don't like them. They're the outcasts. So what do you have? You have all of this religious stuff. You have all of this political stuff. And then you have the outcasts. But they're, they're their family. But they're outcasts. Amazing to me that um, when Jesus was 
trying to get somewhere, he went into Samaria, and there he talked to a Samaritan woman. His disciples were like, what? A Samaritan woman? Because first of all, they were bigoted enough that they didn't like the Samaritans. And if you were a Jewish man in the first century, you used to pray, God, pray to God and say, I thank you that I was not born a, a woman, a slave, or a Gentile. Now these guys are Gentiles, but they're mixed. And so Jesus, when he sits down with this woman at the well, which was startling to them, sitting down with a woman, with a Samaritan woman, he ends up having the deepest theological conversation that he has with anybody in the New Testament, has it with that woman. And so that's the world that Jesus comes into. He comes into, into a world that's sexist. He comes into a world of oppression. He comes into a world of <clears throat> divided religion. He comes into a world where there's, where there's patriots and zealots and rebels. Well, these guys, the Samaritans, there are quite a few of them, almost a million of them. And so to try to sort of sideline a group that big, but they did. And they were forbidden to, to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem, and they set up their own temple in Mount Gerizim. And that lady talks to Jesus about that. She said, you know, you guys say it's supposed to be in Jerusalem, but we say it's here in Mount, Mount, uh, up on the mount here. And Jesus said, look, the day is coming when you won't worship on this mountain or in Jerusalem. Because, you know, God is spirit, and those who worship him, is, he's she's talking to him about the nature of God and of worship, deeper than he talked with his disciples. <clears throat> you see, they were an oppressed people, and the Samaritans were aware of who they were, and they were aware that they were oppressed. Because the Jewish population, they see themselves as oppressed by Rome, and the Samaritans see themselves as oppressed by both Rome and the Jewish population. And know this about oppressed people, oppressed people always are aware of their identity. Well, why would that be? Because they need to fight just, to, just to, to prove that they have a right to exist. And so, and so these guys here, they're very aware of who they are, and they're very aware of the way that the community around them feels about them. That's why she says, you guys say, you guys say this. And Jesus says, not that way. You know, it's, it's what's happening, but it's not that way in the kingdom of God that has no boundaries, no political boundaries. They consider themselves to be Jews, but they worship in their own distinct way. <clears throat> They're monotheistic. They kept the festivals. They were committed to the law. They practiced circumcision. They looked for a coming Messiah. And that lady talks to him about that. And they, and they responded to the ministry of Jesus uh, and, and, and to that of the early believers after Pentecost. They were open to Jesus. These, these other religious leaders, they're not open to him. But the, <clears throat> the Samaritans are very open to him. Very open to him. So you start to see the parallels of what goes on even in our own age. You know, that, 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 that people who are kept down, people who are oppressed, they, they find Jesus. They, knew who, they know who they are, and they're fighting for their identity. They have to prove that they have a right to exist. Um, they find the Lord very often. Then there's the people of the land. They're just the people. It says, it says this about them, that the vast majority were common people. They weren't Pharisees. They weren't Sadducees. They, they weren't zealots. They weren't Herodians. They were just people that go about their daily life. But their daily life is, is very often defined by the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Essenes, the Zealots, the Herodians. But that's not who they are. They're just people. And their religious views were closest to that of the Pharisees because they believed the word of God. But they were despised by the Pharisees as a mob that knew nothing of the law. Isn't that amazing? 
that they identified with the, with the teaching of the Pharisees, and the Pharisees thought they were just losers. The people. Well, they're the people. In Mark, when we get to it, it says they listened to Jesus with delight. It says that when they heard Jesus' teaching, they received his teaching gladly because he didn't teach as their scribes and their leaders. Something different about the teaching of Jesus that just resonated with them. They were the lost sheep who were the focus of Jesus' ministry. The focus of Jesus' ministry is just the common people. And the common people followed him and loved him, um, loved him dearly. So in the fullness of time, he comes. So when Mark's gospel opens, it's the fullness of time. You see this place here, this white sheet, is 400 silent years. Really nothing happens between the Old Testament and the New Testament for nearly 400 years. No miracles, no scripture being written, no prophets. In Matthew's gospel, when Jesus comes on the scene, there's an explosion of the supernatural. There's prophecies being fulfilled in rapid succession. Um, there's angels appearing everywhere. Things are getting upended. Things are turning inside out. Jesus is coming, and it's, it's as though the, the clock has started again. In the fullness of time, he comes. And angels appear to, to Mary and to, and to Joseph, Elizabeth. In the fullness of time, he comes. And that's the world that he comes into. Then there's the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, each written to a distinct audience, but we can get something out of every single one of them. Anybody can get something out of them. Matthew's written specifically to the Jews, and he includes a genealogy that would be important to the Jews. Mark includes no genealogy. He's writing mostly to a Roman audience, and he doesn't include a genealogy. Why? Because the, the Roman audience... And the Roman mind could care less about a genealogy. They don't care where he came from. What they care about is, can he do it? Because it's written to the Romans who are all about power. And the book of Mark is going to be all about power, the power of God. And it's going to move from one thing to another. One of the words that shows up the most is immediately. And the word and is all over the place. He did this and he did that. And he did this and he did that. And it just goes on and on and on with all of these power encounters in Mark. And so the Romans, they don't want to know about his genealogy. They want to know, can he get it done? So Mark is the can-do gospel. Jesus can do it. Jesus is stronger than the storm. Jesus is stronger than, uh, than disease. Jesus is stronger than blindness. Jesus is stronger than demons. Jesus is stronger than Rome. He's stronger than everything. And so Luke will just show us the perfect man and John will just show the, the one who's come from heaven. So, so we'll be in the power gospel. Jesus has power. And Mark loves that. So, but it ends with the resurrection, right? So it goes to the crucifixion and then to the resurrection. So, so it's there that, the, that new life begins. But um, Mark's gospel and Jesus coming into, into the world, actually, uh, uh, crucifixion comes before resurrection. So let's think about it. So Jesus is still coming into the world and still coming to people. Maybe there's somebody in their room um, 
today that he's coming to you for the first time, that this is the first time you're going to receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior. He's coming to you. But what kind of world did Jesus come into in the first century? He came into a world that was bigoted, sexist, politically divided, violent, all kinds of viewpoints about all kinds of things. What kind of world are we living in now? We're living in that same world. There's bigoted, sexist, politically and socially divided people. There's outcasts. There's, there's oppressed people. This, it's the same world. The same world and the same Jesus. It's just that the players play it out a little bit differently. And what does Jesus do? Jesus comes and creates an invisible kingdom that's made up out of all of those people. That's made up out of zealots. That's made up out of Herodians. That's made up out of Pharisees. That's made up out of Sadducees. That's made up out of Essenes. That's made up out of Samaritans. That's made up out of common people. And he takes them together and he puts them all in a bowl and mixes them up and puts them in the oven and makes a beautiful pie. world's no different. People are no different. <clears throat> and so to think that our world is so different than that world, but to get the mindset of Jesus, where Jesus is creating an invisible kingdom that never ends, an invisible kingdom that has no political boundaries, where he's taking people from all of those political boundaries and bringing them into his invisible kingdom <clears throat> that, that rules forever and ever and ever and ever. And what is the rule of the day? The rule of the day is love. So Simon the Zealot needs to learn how to love Matthew. How long do you think that's going to take? <laughs> well, it could take a long time or it could take a short time. Because by the time we get to the book of Acts, the Holy Spirit comes and the Holy Spirit can kill that stuff in a moment. But very often those things are just sort of long-standing. And, and, and when you get to be with somebody for a long time, you begin to change. Mark Twain said, uh, travel is fatal to prejudice. What did he mean by that? He meant that like when you meet the people that you're not supposed to like, you find out that they're very likable. You find out they're very likable. So uh, Jesus comes into the world um, he di to die for our sins, to rise from the dead. Um, and so if you don't know Jesus, pray this prayer. Let's close with a song because uh, we went a little longer than we should. We have people in the hallway screaming. Which, which, gr which group are they? Are they the Sadducees, the Pharisees? They're not the Essenes because they're loud. Um, let's, let's, let's bow our heads. And if you're sincere about praying this prayer, then go on our website and, and click the thing that said, you know, I decided to follow Jesus today. Jesus, I believe you're the son of God, that you died on the cross, you rose from the dead to rescue me from sin and death, to restore me to the Father. I choose now to turn from my sins, my self-centeredness, and every part of my life that doesn't please you. I choose you and I give myself to you. So Jesus came into the world, he came for you. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. Samaritans, Pharisees, Herodians, the respectable, the, non, the not so respectable. And to bring us into a kingdom that never ends, whose rule of law is love. So Jesus, we surrender to you now. Let's stand and 